These days, most of us take our cars to a shop for an oil change. We pull into the service bay, drop off our keys, and join the other customers in the waiting room until the service is completed. When the oil change has been completed, a technician will announce and provides you with a bill. We happily pay for the service and feel confident driving away that the oil change performed is good for another 3,000 miles. This thought process is generally the same for Medicare and insurance companies. A healthcare provider sends a claim for services rendered to the payer, the claim is processed and paid in good faith that the services were provided as reported. We can always lift our car hoods and check the new filter and oil. So can a payer. They will request records to support the service build was rendered and documented. If the medical record submitted does not support medical necessity for the payer to pay for the service, they will request a refund, just like you would if you found an old filter in oil when you checked under the hood. Let's open that hood and take a look at what the payer is expecting to see. I hope you enjoyed that little video there. Um, it's an it's an intro to many different things, but one of the things that I really wanted to talk about is medical necessity. So, <clears throat> and it has more than one answer. So it's not a, just a, a one shot uh, definition like we would find in the dictionary. The term medical necessity really means, is it necessary for me, the payer, Medicare, Blues, United Healthcare, Humana, is it really necessary for me as the payer to pay the bill um, to help this patient live, right? So is it necessary for me to pay the bill for this person to live? Um, here's another scenario. When you take your car to that shop for an oil change, what if they replace the entire motor? I mean, you know, your car would probably last longer, but is it really necessary to have a new motor every 3,000 miles? Or would that oil change carry you through the next 3,000 miles, right? Or even better, should you have to pay thousands of dollars um, for a new motor, or is that oil change gonna be okay, that $29 oil change, right? So we really need to think about that also from that payer's perspective. Um, now, there are many of us that have taken our cars to the shop and the mechanic says, hey, you do need a new motor if you wanna keep using this car. And, you know, we'll suck it up, we'll pay for it, we'll go down the road, right? But for the rest of us, it may not be medically necessary, I'll put my little air quotes there, medically necessary to pay for that brand new motor. So um, we're gonna look at some different sources and we're gonna see some clarity and try to understand it from the payer's perspective there. Just because you have health insurance doesn't mean that every visit to the doctor or to a provider should be paid by that payer. And that's what medical necessity comes in. And you hear that all the time, medically necessary. And, and I used to throw my, my, my hands up and say, medically necessary, why else would I be going to the doctor? But I've noticed that as I've gotten a little older in life, there are other reasons why you would go to the doctor. Not admitting anything with that statement. Anyway, um, we start with the very beginning. Let's look under the Social Security Act. And the Social Security Act defines medical necessity as reasonable and necessary for the diagnosing and treatment of an illness or injury or to improve a mal 
functioning body member. So uh, again, we have one good statement there that says uh, that it's reasonable and necessary. There are a lot of other factors to consider, like should a payer pay for an office visit that there's no proof, there's no documentation, right? How do you prove that that visit actually took place and that there should be some reimbursement for it? So documentation is key. You know, all of us in the industry, we've heard it for years. If it's not documented, it didn't happen, right? Um, so that is so very true. Also, think about it. If we turn it around into your particular perspective, if I came to you and I said, Laurel, I have a bill here for $200 for expenses that I incurred um, doing a job for you or your family member or you know your, your dog or your cat. And I said, here, I want you to pay this bill. I mean, any of us, we say, show me the proof. Show me what you did. Let me see what you did. And that's why we have receipts and, and we have um, you know records of things that are done. Imagine if you go have dinner somewhere and they handed you a bill for $10,000. First thing you wanna see is what did I eat for $10,000? Because I know what I ordered on the menu. So again, same thing. We need to have that proof that is available there. Um, that proof has to be authenticated. So it means it has to be signed or the note has to be closed, authenticated by the person who performed the visit, right? Um, how do you know that the medical assistant didn't treat the patient? And are you going to pay $200 for the medical assistant to treat the patient? Or is $200 something that you would expect to pay to a provider who's gone to college for many years, who's been licensed in the state, who carries the, the requirements that are needed, who went into a pledge, an agreement with your insurance company to participate with them. Um, that is who we would happily pay that money to, but not necessarily would we pay that same price to the medical assistant um, because they have a limited scope of service or maybe the phlebotomist or maybe even the front office girl. You're not going to pay her for the visit that you had, right? Because she's not qualified to take care of you in that manner. And so notes have to be authenticated by the author. So we need the proof and we need the proof of who actually did the visit. So when a note is not closed or not completed, there's no authentication to assure who did the service that was recorded, right? And so that's really, really important there. Um, notes have to be closed timely to help support medical necessity. Now, no cheating, but I'm gonna ask you, do you remember what you did on June 2nd? Okay, don't look at your agenda, your calendar, don't get out your appointment cards, I don't want you to cheat. What did you do? What did you wear on June 2nd? What did you eat on June 2nd? Who did you talk to on June 2nd? And what did you watch on TV that evening? The majority of us really have no idea. We, you know, we have such busy lives. We're doing so many things. And now imagine a provider of service who is seeing 20, 30 patients a day, right? Do they remember every detail of that patient on June 2nd? Some providers do. I'm, I'm not knocking that, but I'm just saying uh, based on our own personal experiences, and maybe the experience of a payer might say, notes need to be closed in a timely manner in order to capture all the information that happened at that brief encounter with the patient, right? And that's fair for them to ask that. 
it's fair of them to assume that the majority of us don't remember what we did on June 2nd. So Medicare also has uh, their Medicare claims processing manual. And I hope all of you are very familiar with those processing manuals. Um, in chapter 12, they give a, another definition of medical necessity. Um, medical necessity of a service is the overarching criterion for payment. Think about how bold that one statement is, the overarching criterion. So is it necessary for this particular visit to be paid by the payer? right? That is the true reason why they should pay for it. Um, again, they go on to say that it would not be medically necessary or appropriate to bill for a higher level of evaluation and management service when a lower level is warranted. So right there, they're telling us that the documentation matters. It must support the level of service that's being reported, that we shouldn't just be picking our, our E&M codes based on what we think that it should be, but what it really should be documented and supported, what is warranted for that particular visit. So the volume of documentation, this is from the quote again, the volume of documentation should not be the primary influence upon which a specific level of service is billed. Documentation should support the level of service that's billed, and the service should be documented during or as soon as practicable after in order to maintain an accurate medical record. So, I, I mean, again, that is truly supporting what we've just talked about. You don't remember June 2nd that well. Well, some of you probably have looked at your calendar since I said that, and maybe you have a better idea about June 2nd. Um, or maybe you had a, an event on June 2nd. So again, it could be any date, any month. I just pulled that one out of the air this morning. Um, and, and there's that support there that we need to say, it's, you're probably not going to remember what you did so far ago. So we need to make sure those notes are closed and authenticated. And another good thing that, that I want to point out here is that the, the manual states that the volume of documentation should not be the primary influence. Okay. And that can go both ways. I know that a lot of our EMRs now, they allow us to pull information from lots of different areas and we could generate, easily generate a five, six, 10 page note. But does the quality of that note support the level of service that was done today? Think about that. That's a loaded statement. Does that quality, does those eight, 10 pages really support the level of service that was reported today? So we need to be very in tuned with ENM um, guidelines and how to calculate those types of visits. Um, another thing is I, I preach all the time. It's not volume, guys. It's just not volume. I have seen some amazing progress notes that were half a page long or, or maybe even less because the quality was just superb and amazing, right? So again, that volume of documentation, that is not the primary influence when you are selecting a level of service for evaluation and management, of course. Um, a couple of other things that I want to talk about when it comes to closing those notes timely. Now, CMS doesn't really give us a smoking gun and tell us you need to have your notes closed within 24 hours. They do tell us as soon as possible, right? But they don't give us that number that we're all very much looking for, that boundary, that, that boundary number that tells us how our, our notes need to be closed. But um, back in 2006, MyMac, First Coast Service Options here in Florida, MyMac posted an update 
in 2006. Um, it was the Medicare B update, third quarter, 2006, number four, volume four, number three. And it went to say in the paragraph that Medicare expects documentation to be generated at the time of service or shortly thereafter. Delayed entries within a reasonable time frame, and they do give us a time, reasonable entries to a completed medical record are expected to be done within 24 to 48 hours. And those are acceptable for the purpose of clarification, error correction, or additional information that was not initially available. And if certain unusual circumstances prevent the generation of a note at the time of service. Okay, so they tell us that they do allow these delays within 24 to 48 hours. So if we use that logic that our, our addendums to our notes should be reported within 24 to 48 hours, the note should be closed prior to the addendum. So that's about as close as I think we were able to find when it came to putting that timeline in place. So again, that's First Coast Service Options. It is the Medicare B update, third quarter, 2006, volume four, number three. Um, again, I'm in Florida, so I, I have my resources for Florida uh, at, at arm's length all the time. And Medicaid, Florida Medicaid, does have a record keeping and documentation policy that is in place. And they do give us those specific parameters that are necessary. So if we look at that Florida Administrative Code for Medicaid by ACCA, um, it explains to us a few different things. But one of the most important things is that it tells us that for Medicaid beneficiaries, Medicaid patients, those notes must be signed and dated within two business days from the date of service or otherwise authenticated by the record of signature, uh, written initials, a computer entry, or an electronic signature. And that's permissible by Chapter 668, Part 1 of the Florida Statute. Um, so Medicaid is true. And I did participate many years ago um, as an expert for a, an attorney's office where Medicaid disallowed many visits that were signed by the physician after that 40, that 48 hours had passed, after those two business days had passed and they requested their funds back. So um, that really does exist, it did happen. And so you wanna be careful with the different payers and what their requirements are to close records. So make sure you're looking in your contracts, make sure you're identifying whether it is documented in your contracts or in any of the, the paperwork that you sign when you become participating for Medicare, Medicaid, or any of these programs, make sure that you're aware of what their expectations of you are. Um, when we talk about medical necessity, I, I looked it up all the other big name payers. So I looked up Aetna, Cigna, the Blues, Humana, United Healthcare, and there was something that resonated with all of the payers when they were defining medical necessity and they all define medical necessity. So look at your contracts, um, go online and look at the provider manuals because they're very clear. Um, and what, what is consistent amongst them is that medical necessity is the purpose of evaluating, diagnosing, treating an injury, an illness, a disease, or its symptoms um, according to the standards of medical practice. So this would be something that would not be experimental. 
that it would be clinically appropriate. So it would be done in the right place for the right duration, for the right time at the right site of the person. And again, for an injury, an illness or a disease. And most of them all include a comment that says, not primarily for the convenience of the patient or the healthcare provider or another physician or another healthcare provider. Um, so there should also be not an alternative treatment that is available for the patient. So again, we should always be looking at cost as well as medical necessity, um, that we're not jumping out there and ordering a, a very extensive test or very extensive type of treatment when another more cost-effective treatment is available to diagnose or treat that patient's injury, illness, or disease. Um, so the one that I, I like the most is it's not primarily for the convenience of the patient. So what if a patient presents to the office for maybe a follow-up visit of a chronic condition or maybe for their annual physical or an annual wellness visit and the patient states, um, I, I need a test for the bubonic plague. What? Are you sick? No. Uh, have you traveled to a location that, no, I haven't traveled at all. I haven't left. We're in COVID. Okay, fair enough. Um, how about, do you know someone who has been exposed to the bubonic plague? No. Again, I haven't left my house, it's COVID. Um, but my mom says that she saw on Facebook that the bubonic plague is is now in a pandemic and she said, I need to get tested. Well, with no signs and no symptoms and no medical reason, why would a payer, why would Humana, why would Medicare have to pay for this expensive test? Think about it. And so that's why we have these medical necessity guidelines there. You know what, if, if buddy, if, if you really feel like you need to have that bubonic plague test done, realize that you have to pay for today's visit first because there's no reason for you to come in and, and the insurance company or the uh, federal payer to pay for this visit. And you're probably gonna have to pay for the test too, right? Because again, they're not gonna pay the lab for running this test that there's no medical necessity for it. Because his mom heard it on Facebook, that is not medically necessary. I mean, some of us believe that what we see on Facebook is true, hopefully not too many of us, but you get what I'm saying? Um, speaking of tests, there are some guidelines that have been put in place to again, make sure that a test is really needed and necessary for a payer to pay. And, and again, I'm gonna keep going back to that. Medical necessity really goes back to who's paying the bill, right? If I'm paying the bill, I can pretty much get whatever I want, right? I have Amazon, I can get anything I want. But if I'm not paying the bill and I'm asking someone else to pay the bill, there needs to be a good reason why they're paying that bill. And, and that mentality is not just in healthcare, that's with anything, right? We're not gonna go shelling out money just to shell out money. We, we do it for a reason. We're buying a good or we're paying for a service um, that is needed and was done correctly, right? So let's talk about tests. There are specific guidelines that Medicare and C CMS has put in place for ordering of tests right? So there must be documentation of the intent for the test. What's the reason why we're doing the test? What do we expect to do with the results of that test? 
we are, we're going to use the results to treat that patient for the signs and symptoms or the disease that they present with that we're monitoring or diagnosing, right? And that makes good sense. Orders have to be signed because again, we're giving the order for this test to be carried out. So we can't go back later and put a signature on an order after it was already done. The signature, the authentication, the ordering provider must document and must sign that order before it's done, right? So if we looking at medical records and um, maybe there is a note there that wasn't signed by the provider and there's no separate order anywhere in the chart that there was a, a by, given by the provider, then that test may not meet the requirements of medical necessity because it wasn't signed before it was done. It wasn't technically ordered with a signature until after it was done. So we wanna take a look at that. Um, there's a lot of great information in that link there, Copy and, uh, complying with Medicare signature requirements. It's one of their MLN fact sheets um, and I highly recommend you take a look at it. Uh, not just Medicare and the payers, but I also wanna remind you that a lot of our state PIP, our personal injury protection auto insurance, many of those follow Medicare guidelines. So I, again, I'm gonna revert back to my state here in Florida. We have a Florida statute 627.3736. And it states that um, no services or supplies will be reimbursed. They only cover, sorry, let me back up. They only cover services and supplies or care that is reasonable and necessary under Medicare or workman's compensation rules. And so we defer to Medicare when it comes to our auto insurance claims. And again, if Medicare is telling us that medical necessity for the payer, right, needs to meet those parameters and requirements, then we need to make sure that even our, our auto insurances that are going out, they support that medical necessity as, as Medicare has given to us. So um, again, in a 30 minute time, we can't possibly go over all of the ins and outs of medical necessity. I just wanted to give you a, just a little chunk to chew on and think about medical necessity and how you, it's supported within your practice there and, um, and, and give you something to, to think about with medical necessity. Again, it, it might be good for your car to get a new motor every 3000 miles, but do you need to pay for that? right? Is that truly necessary, medically necessary for your car? Hmm, I think most of us would say that an oil change will keep us going for a little bit longer. So um, I'd like to open up for some questions before we go. Um, we've got a few minutes left and I'd love to chat about medical necessity. I'd love to hear about what your questions are about medical necessity. And if we don't get to your questions today, please feel free to reach out to me. You all know my email address by now. It's chall at Sterling Global Solutions. Um, please feel free that you can reach out to me and ask me some questions. If you need me to come into your practice and maybe do some education on medical necessity, any compliance education, uh, maybe you want to do an audit to see how your practice is doing with medical necessity or any of the other compliance issues that you might have in your practice, please feel free to reach out to me. We would love to be an asset and a resource to you. So where are those questions at? Let's see. I'm going to click over to my little chat log here and let's see what questions we have. 
Ah, so Jennifer likes the analogies that we gave here today. And, you know, sometimes that's how it is. It's sometimes it's perception of how you report things to a provider. Um, I have to be honest that most of the providers that give me a hard time when it comes to medical necessity, some of my largest challenges have been some of the, the male doctors that I've worked with. No offense, docs. Love you. Um, but it's been a little bit more difficult. I found that these analogies are somewhat helpful when it comes to, to giving analogies. Um, and, and of course, orthopedic doctors, they're very hands-on. They're very much about the mechanics of how things work. And so they get this analogy well. Um, so I'm glad that you enjoyed that. What other questions can I answer for you this morning, guys? Let's see. Medical necessity is, I had a question, medical necessity is documented in all of your payer contracts. You know, you'll definitely see that they only cover reasonable and necessary um, visits. There are other reasons why you could possibly get a denial. I had a question here that says we get denied for medical necessity and, and we don't know the answer why they're denying it. Um, there's lots of different reasons why. Uh, if I had to give you a place to go first, if you did receive a denial for medical necessity, I would look at my diagnosis first. I would see what diagnosis was reported and see if that diagnosis is something that would be considered medically necessary for the payer to pay the bill. Um, maybe the diagnosis pointer on the claim wasn't the correct diagnosis pointer to truly represent the reason why that procedure or service was done. So take a look at those things. That, that's my knee-jerk answer to denials for medical necessity. Um, any other questions that we have this morning coming through? Let's see. I, I need to get better with my chat box here. So I have a question that says, can you appeal medical necessity? Absolutely, you can. If your documentation supports it, all of those key components that we talked about are in place. You're reporting the right diagnosis. You definitely can um, appeal those denials for medical necessity. So am any more questions coming through this morning on medical necessity? Yeah, it is a big thing, you know. Um, and we have to keep we have to keep those things in mind that we have people that patients that come in and they want certain things done or they they have a concern that maybe doesn't have all of those medically necessary components there. Um, let's see. So I have another question here that's come up. And it's asking about a specific payer. Um, I, I don't know this particular payer that you're mentioning, but I will tell you that you, you should take a look at your contracts. You, you know, it's always a good idea. Let's go backwards. It's also a good idea to always take a, a look at your documentation. So those of you that are in the, the practice or those of you that are doing billing and coding for providers, or if there's any providers on the line today, it's not a bad idea to do your spot checks. You know, once a month, pull some records, take a look at those records, take a look at the documentation, and make sure that you're, you're just focusing on medical necessity. Is medical necessity truly reported in this document, right? Um, if you find some areas of improvement, that's super. You can go back to your providers, give them that information, and not worry about it. 
Um, also, don't forget that those types of audits and monitoring are part of your mandatory compliance program. So anyone that's participating with any federal funds, Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, um, even some of your federal employees that are paid through federal benefits there, those patients, you are required to have a compliance program in your office. And so that audit that you do on medical necessity, that can be an audit that supports your compliance program. If you want more information about implementing or uh, your compliance program, how to get it up and running or how to help make it work more smoothly, how to make that book on the shelf that's all dusty, how to make it work for your practice, please feel free to reach out to us. We would be happy to help you with that. Um, and so that's the time that we have today. Don't forget if you think about something later or something resonates with you that you can always reach out. Um, we are, see, my email is chall at Sterling Global Solutions. Wanna remind you of a couple of things, guys. Um, coming up on September um, 10th through 12th, we have our Ozark Coding Alliance Virtual Healthcare Summit that I have been asked to speak at. I'm gonna be speaking on September the 11th at one o'clock on how to effortlessly calculate medical decision-making data and risk in 2021. So again, how are we doing with calculating those tricky components of medical decision-making? And then on Sunday, the 12th at 9 a.m., I'm gonna be talking about becoming being compliant with telehealth today. And we know that they just extended the public health emergency at the last minute, but thankfully, um, and so telehealth is still under that modified waiver, right? The modified, modified requirements there under the waiver. And so it's important that we understand how to continue using telehealth. Um, then I will also be speaking on August the 28th at 9 a.m. for the Palm Beach AAPC chapter. Please feel free to join us. I'll be discussing auditing e in 2021 and CEUs will be offered for both events. If you didn't catch all that information, that's okay. We will list it in the comments box on our YouTube page for this link for this visit today. And um, again, I thank you so much for taking the time with me to discuss this issue of medical necessity. I look forward to joining you guys every single week. So thank you so much. Please look out for the poll on the different topics that you'd like to hear me talk about in the upcoming weeks. And, um, and I'll see you soon. Have a great rest of your week and great weekend. Take care. Thanks for watching.